0: VJ or Vijay? Neither. Speak. Tell it to me. Let me hear it. Vijay. Vijay.
1: So right.
0: You know what it is? That no one says it. I blame uh, <laughs> Vijay Singh, the golfer. Or did he just let it go? He
1: just let it go because the fact is that people have called me VJ most of my life. Yeah, that's the Americanization. I, of it, Yeah, right? it's like actually, it's funny. I saw this little clip of Hassan Hassan Minaj. Um, Speaking with a bunch of young South Asian teenagers, oh. <laughs> and like the first question he asked is like, "Okay, tell me your name, and then tell me y- your
0: white name." <laughs> it was sort of like, "What do white people but call that, it?" Tell me how white people say your name. So that's a true yeah. thing. But so now I know, and I will spread the good news. Vijay, Ayer. Pretty simple. You'd think. <laughs> come on, come on. <laughs> Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway and & Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is Steinway artist Vijay Iyer, an American jazz pianist and composer who is a four-time downbeat magazine Artist of the Year and who has released over 20 albums covering diverse musical terrain. He spoke to me from his home in Harlem, USA. Last time I saw you, this was in Brooklyn with Craig Taborn. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of notes.
1: <laughs> notes were <for> flying.
0: <laughs> Tell me the idea behind that two piano collaboration. What was the goal there when you guys were doing a piano duo? Why did you want to do that?
1: It's a collaborative project or practice that's sort of evolved over a pretty long time we found ourselves thrown in together in roscoe mitchell's note factory (laughs) to talk (laughs) about notes flying in fact that's something roscoe used to say he'd say (laughs) keep those keep those notes flying vijay just keep them flying so that's like a rare moment when two pianists get to work together as side people in a larger aggregate you know it was partly through the rigors of trying to function in Roscoe's universe and his particular exacting approach to music making um, and a very uh, evolved sense of counterpoint and form and um, really detailed, rigorous, and um, bold. And it's you know, like, it could be breathtaking. <laughs> it's kind of like, and it's, it's, uh, Fearlessness, you know, but also there's like a lot of detail and rigor in there. So out of that experience of working in that kind of crucible, (laughs) um, we uh, developed a certain kind of rapport. So out of that, we started playing duets. Um, So basically, we've been functioning in that format for about a decade. Hmm. So any instantiation of it, like any given concert, is... Sort of like stepping into that river, you know. But it's also, there is this sensibility of like, how do we sculpt a series of events for this occasion in this room with this audience and with these pianos sounding the way they do separately and together. So it's really like this co-constructive process. I don't want to say we start from scratch because, like I said, there's a process that's evolved very organically and pretty... Tightly with a lot, a great amount of care. But we don't step out on stage with any kind of plan. That's except that halfway through we will switch pianos. (laughs) And that becomes this kind of formal element is kind of yeah. like a it's like tennis yeah exactly it's exactly everybody like gets the uh
0: <laughs> gets the
2: potholes on the other that's side right, that's right <laughs> uh
1: and it also just reorients the energy for us both yeah. you know so and and then it helps us sculpt the overall think like okay having said all that we're going to move forward into this other configuration and decide what to say next
0: out playing classical violin mm-hmm. how did you get from there to jazz it's true that i
1: started out playing suzuki violin which you could say it's classical but it's a particular take on it which is that you start by learning by ear
2: mm-hmm.
1: what a concept you know <laughs> so yeah and then the other thing is that almost immediately after that i was three but within less than a year i was starting to play piano by ear So I don't really remember a time before that. In other words, like both of them were kind of my musical life throughout my childhood and throughout my youth and ever since. So, and I guess you could say that in one sphere, which is what became Western classical music, um, I was like guided (laughs) very clearly through repertoire and technique and aesthetics and uh, right and wrong. Mm -hmm. a certain sense of like what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do playing in orchestras, don't tap your foot things like that but also like how to play in tune how to blend, synchronize you know, on those terms then the piano was this kind of, I was like a feral child (laughs) you know, so I was um, exploring it completely on my own terms like, oh let me try to pick out the melody to beat it by Michael Jackson you know, something like that And I was following my ear and eventually things started to coalesce in a way that, um... and the other thing was because of this, it wasn't even official. Like it wasn't, oh, Vijay has his time to work on the piano. No, it was like, stop playing your sister's piano. (laughs) So it was actually kind of this wayward thing that I would do that didn't really, uh, wasn't on the official schedule of things I was supposed to be doing. Right. Um, And and in particular, I would just sort of do it in between everything else. I'd sort of like like waiting for my friend to come pick me up to go to the mall or something. (laughs) Or go to him, you know, just be sitting at the piano. And of course, they're late. So I'm like sitting at the piano for 90 minutes or something like that, um, figuring things out. So it was a lot of stuff like that.
0: Those supposed to's and not
1: supposed to's. Right, right, right. Over time, like... Both of these things acquired, both of these pursuits kind of acquired their own richness and detail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what kind of helped connect the dots for me was when I was in middle school, I took some music theory courses at Eastman. I grew up in Rochester, New York. So that, I mean, it was like rudimentary stuff, Bach chorales and counterpoint things, you know, but learning that when you're 11 and 12.
0: You're already avoiding parallel fists.
1: Well, I was told to, yeah. I mean, I was told that that was wrong, which is why I do them all the time. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, but then anyway, that gave me a sort of feel for voice leading from within and from kind of from the source, like from Bach. In the meantime, like growing up in the 70s and 80s, the music that you hear kind of everywhere that isn't top 40 radio... The music of jingles and kind of like interstitial music on Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street and like the Cosby Show and whatever, you know. And you'll have things you'll want
2: to talk about.
1: I will, too. Bye, special friends. A lot of it is not just any old jazz musicians, but actually like kind of great ones. you know, like really, I saw Dizzy Gillespie on Sesame Street. I saw John Blake, the violinist, and his son, John Blake Jr, <laughs> on Mr. Rogers, I remember. So like I remember seeing and hearing and starting to put together that there's this whole other realm of music making. And our high school, pretty it was a public school with a pretty good music program. I played in the orchestra, and then they let me into the jazz ensemble, even though I was not really an official pianist. But I got to sort of, and I remember it. Like, I I knew some music theory, so I could kind of fake my way through chord changes. But then I remember when I auditioned, the director said, well, you need to learn about voicings, and you need to learn the idiom, you need to learn the language. That's when I took a handful of lessons with a local jazz pianist in Rochester. His name is Andy Calabrese. He's still there 30-something years later. You know, that sort of just connected a few more dots because, like, I thought I knew what a G minor 7 chord was, but here were a few other ways to state mm. that mm-hmm. that then kind of, like, brought in a whole new spectrum of colors and information, you know, like different mm-hmm. possibilities for voice leading and and then also, like, how to function in a rhythm section, you know, and he, I remember he loaned me some records. I remember the first two records he loaned me. One was Red Garland, Bright and Breezy. It's a trio album with Sam Jones and Charlie Persip. And the other was Keith Jarrett's Standards Volume 1 on ECM with Jack DeJohnette and Gary Pica. And so those were two like radically different takes on the same format. There may have even been overlap and repertoire. I don't really remember, but it was like I couldn't even kind of triangulate. Like, how are these the same, uh-huh. even in the same universe? They felt so different. But then I just started checking out more albums from the local um, library, literally checking them out of the library, <laughs> taking them home, taping them, you know, listening to them over and over, trying to figure out what on earth was going on. And through that process and getting to work, getting to play with my peers in the jazz ensemble every day and just trying to figure things out, you know, and it started to add up for me. By that time I was playing like some concertos and solo repertoire and Playing an or- I was a concert master of the orchestra, but I was also like throwing myself into this whole other piano history and language and body of knowledge. I was trying to get a grip on.
0: And you've still kept a foot in each of these worlds.
1: Well, increasingly, yeah. Well, I basically quit violin at age eighteen, which was when I was a sophomore in college. I said I cannot do this anymore. I got to the point where I heard how. I could hear how bad I was. <laughs> you know, it was sort of yeah. like, well, what you, when you're like at a certain level, where you're like, oh, I know what I need to do to kind of perfect that, and, you can't and get there. I just don't have time because yeah. I'm a physics and math major at Yale, and right. like I have to do these problem sets, and this isn't going to work. So I had to make a break, which was like kind of traumatic, you know, after 15 years of playing that instrument, but it was just too painful to continue. And I think a lot of people who have classical training in childhood. Can relate to this, where like you just develop all these neuroses around not being perfect, mm-hmm. and then it just becomes too much of a.
0: You can have a breakdown.
1: Yeah, and you, yeah. You, it just becomes this like can of worms for you that you just like let me just like put this in a box forever, and mm-hmm. never go back. You know. So I know a lot of people like that who like had a lot of musical experience in their childhood and then just never again because they like couldn't face it. You know, mm-hmm. and that said. I mean, then they become listeners, of course. But I've kind of had a new lease on it. So, like, in the meantime, I really threw, threw myself into not just the language of creative, improvised music from the African-American tradition, but also that community. And, like, building collaborative relationships with artists in that world and becoming, you know, apprenticing with elder musicians in that sphere going as far as I could go. That's still like a huge, that's a huge part of my life. It's like, it's, um, it's the reason I am where I am, is because of the nurturing and kindness, generosity, and love of African-American elder artists who, who took me under their wings and let me fail in their presence and let me stumble and let me figure things out. I moved to uh, Oakland, California, and I became a grad student in physics, (laughs) uh, which I then quit. By the way, I'm not a physicist. Mm -hmm. I quit physics, which means I'm not a physicist. I quit it. I didn't get a Ph.D. in physics. I do not have a Ph.D. in physics. I'm just saying that because it is widely and falsely reported that I do, but I do not.
0: You don't even play one on television.
1: Did you hear that? I don't have one. I quit physics in 1994, 25 years ago. Stop calling me a physicist. I'm not one. What did you quit 25 years ago? What if I called you one of those? As a
0: physicist, <laughs> I'm not a <laughs>
1: physicist. Anyway, um, the reason that I had moved to the Bay Area was to try to do that. And in the meantime, I suddenly found myself work like becoming the. I became the house pianist at this jam session in Oakland, who was playing with people f- like. African-American men who were 50 years older than me. I was 20 and they were 70. I mean, it was like that. we were playing standards from their childhood. That kind of stuff really shook me and transformed me, and like, especially experiencing the music in context, and kind of revealing this whole realm of meaning that music could occupy, where it was more than just like something you would perfect in a practice room. It was actually something that, that had a communicative power, Among the musicians I apprenticed with in the Bay Area, Donald Bailey was this incredible drummer, originally from Philadelphia. He had settled in Oakland, and he had this band that I played in for several years. And being in a rhythm section with him was this intense, dialogic, contentious, and really exploratory and joyous kind of um, affair. Just getting to play with him every week was an education. And then there's another drummer named E.W. Wainwright, who I played with in his band for several years as well.
0: Since you mentioned African-American influences, I'd like to ask you, since hip-hop is now the popular African-American art form of the 21st century, and I'm making an assertion here to having taken that over from jazz Mm in the 20th century, what position or where is jazz now? As an art form.
1: You know, it's not that jazz was the popular music of the twentieth century quite. It's not that direct. I mean that often you'll hear weird conservative critics like Terry Teachout say <laughs> something like that. I mean it maybe in the twenties and thirties. Okay. But things changed after that. And then, you know, there were different kind of movements. Associated that they kind of happen under the jazz banner, um, but jazz is just a name for a business. It's not really a name for a particular style, or I don't know. Like when we're talking about a hundred years worth of music, that to have, try to encompass it under one word?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The word, the term, is unstable. Is what I'm trying to say. It doesn't really do everything that people think it does. You know, mm-hmm. and in fact, it kind of often works against. Musicians, So I guess I would think about like how all these different musical uh, approaches that went under different banners or labels or business terms <laughs> um, actually were kind of the same. Hip-hop itself <clears throat> is
0: also a business term. So yeah. Or urban.
1: I'm old enough, and I think so are you, yeah. to remember the beginnings of hip-hop. And I was listening to Run DMC in 19... 19- Eighty-one or whatever it was,
0: you know, and raising hell. Yeah. Now, Peter
2: Piper picked peppers, but run, rock, run, Humpty Dumpty fell down, down. That's his art. Time. Jackie Nimble. what? Nimmo, and he was quick, but jam, Matt, That's Jack saw so Jay's dick. Now, little Bo Peep, Cole lost her sheep, and Rip Van Winkle fell a hell asleep. And out of till the summer in Wonderland, Jack serving Jill, bucket in his hand. And damn masterpiece making that sound. The
1: turntables might wobble, but they don't fall down. There was it was actually Rocket, like, which came out around that time. Harvey Hancock. Which, um, you know, he at that moment was trying to get in on a what was clearly this groundswell of new creativity coming out of African-American city culture. in that moment and in DC and in LA and so on and a lot of that had to do with like okay after this these decades of destructive municipal practices under the name of urban renewal African American communities and cities found themselves lacking basic resources and lacking access to things like instruments you know so then it was like okay we're going to make How do you make music anyway? So to me, what hip-hop really came out of was this sensibility of like, well, we can make music out of what seems like nothing. What we do have, what was it that could be drawn from? And what they could draw from was this whole archive of great black music that was recorded. (laughs) So like, you know, the idea that you could take a song like Good Times and extend the break Loop the breakbeat. Yeah, by having good the same. Same. Same.
2: Uh, good switching.
1: Then inside of that space, all these new improvisatory forms popped up, like rhyming, breakdancing—you know, like a very these like kind of uh, new expressive forms.
0: The hip, the hip, the hip, 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 hover, you don't stop,
1: rock it out, baby, to the boogity bang bang, the boogie to the boogity beat. Now, what you hear is not a test, I'm rapping to the bead. And me, the groove, and my friends are gonna try to move your feet. You see, I am Wonder Mike, and I like to say hello. the But when you think about that sensibility of taking a found object or a, a pre existing piece, and looping it, and expressing yourself through it—that's also what they did with the American song forms. That's what, like when Charlie Parker would take the song form of "How High the Moon," which was a song that was just lying around, you know, and say like, "Well, I'm gonna kind of just play in between the stuff that's supposedly composed." I'm gonna hold on. Noise. When you
0: say lying around, this means it was like a found standard for yeah. him. Yeah,
1: and then it's like basically what he does is not that song. It's actually its own thing, which is using the bones of that song to do something very different. So, to me, like that structural move, which is like repurposing the innards or the bones or the structure of an existing work to do something radically new, is ancient, <laughs> actually. And if that's hip hop, it's also jazz. Sure, and even in the sensibility of make of doing covers of old pieces like this. So the other piece of it is like the encounter with technology, you know, mm-hmm. which is like a big part of what there's a sort of speculative character in hip hop, which is like, okay, we're going to, we're going to deal with the future by dealing with machines and like fusing human and machine through these, like through technological means through like vocoders and samplers and drum machines. And,
0: and stuff that like. was that early techno. Yeah. yeah. Parallel evolution.
1: Right. That's also in the ethos of what hip hop is. So when you think about it from those like basic atomic components, it's not that far from what any of us do anyway. Uh, and so I don't know. I guess I feel that maybe because I'm of that age where I breathed in some of the beginnings of hip hop and and have been a, you know was a fa- and have been a fan since the '80s. You <laughs> know, like I learned every bar of three feet high and rising (laughs) and the low end theory and midnight marauders and like, you know, learned all the verses, all the beats yeah, all that stuff. Like that was, that, that was like our, our generation.
0: Those were the standards. That was
1: like what was in the air, you know? So then that affects the sensibility of how I feel rhythm, how I hear the past, you know, like how I hear things fragments of the past even some of the repertoire I've done has been like nodding to stuff like that like our version of Mystic Brew which was also then the taken up electric
0: relaxation yes
1: right so that was taken up by Tribe Call Quest for example sampled by Ali Shahid Mohammed know, when I did a version of "Galang" by M.I.A., which was sort of like, okay, here's this this kind of insurgent energy from a South Asian hip hop artist. Uh, what are they trying to do, and can we access that energy through really studying the details of that piece of music? You know, deep studying it as a piece of music and trying to learn from it and access something about it. Like our version of uh, a song by Heatwave, The Star of a Story. You know, you could say, well, they're playing hip-hop beats, but that's not... I mean, actually, a hip-hop beat is just a soul funk beat that's been kind of warped in a certain way. You know, or sort of um, turned into a sort of machine-like chant or something. You know, it's, it's coming from existing rhythms and structures and forms. Like, uh, you know, people sampling James Brown's beats or the meter's or the Ohio players or or any of that.
0: pointing out how hip-hop and jazz are coming from the same, it's the same place, from and, the same waterfall.
1: And even to, to draw that fine line as if there were no points in between. Right. Because, like, you know, I mentioned Michael Jackson's Beat It as, like, a song from my childhood, right? And from everyone's childhood is anywhere around my age because you could not escape that music. But I lived with it, like with that music and with Prince's music from that era.
0: All the Gen Xers wore Thriller out.
1: Yeah, I wore that out. I wore Off the Wall out. I wore out 1999 and Purple Rain. Controversy, (laughs) um, you know, Around the World in a Day. (laughs) Love Sexy, Sign of the Times. That was... Formative music for me, Prince's music in the 80s was like formative for me. And I realized actually even thinking about him lately, you know, he was just in the news because uh, his estate declared that Donald Trump could not use his song, (laughs) Purple Rain, (laughs) under any circumstances, which was great. Um, But yeah, like I realized that I learned a lot about form from his dance records, like from... Mm -hmm. 1999, and the, the song and House Quake, and like uh, Starfish and Coffee, and uh, When Doves Cry, and Controversy itself, and Lady Cab Driver, Tambourine. There was all this, like, a particular pro- approach to uh, rhythm, to form, mm-hmm. the tonality, spaciousness, like.
0: Modal, very modal.
1: Yeah, and also like kind of these stark textures. When you think about, mm-hmm. I don't know if you last time you listened to When Doves Cry, but there's no bass. Right. It's really it weird. So here it is like. It
0: wine and then the, the beats for it. Yeah, dribble. there's no,
1: it's actually all wealthy. drums. Yeah. It's all drums and voice. It's really strange. There's hardly anything like that there. have these, like, really bold ideas about what music could be, you know? And then the way he would space things out, so you'd have this one beat that would go on for, like, 8 or 12 minutes, and then all these different episodes and different textures, and, like, suddenly a horn section would come in, like, three-quarters of the way through. You know? (laughs) Stuff like that. (laughs) You know? So he had this way of pacing and, like, carrying you somewhere which was very much born in the club. You know, that sensibility of like, how do you move it? How do you move somebody? How do you move a group of people? And
0: keep the through line going for 20 minutes. Yes, exactly.
1: And that's where hip hop was. Uh, It was all in that same, in the vicinity of that, you know, like the same kind of sensibility. So I guess I see it all as connected actually. And then like the other thing was working with some of these um, innovators like Roscoe and Wadada and Steve Coleman and and hearing their relationship to the past you know, what's their relationship to all these different elements and realizing how much they know about it, you know, so it's not, it's never an either or
0: It's a sharp attack in your music. Your music is angular. You didn't say shark attack. There's these shark attacks. It's it's always shark week. (laughs) There's a sharp attack in your music. It's angular. It's polyrhythmic. It's often tonal. As I try to quantify your aesthetic, which is always an unfair thing to do, Hmm. I'm wondering, what are your musical priorities when you sit down at the keyboard, when you sit down with your trio, let's say, what is it that you want to transmit?
1: Hmm. I mean, it's, it's hard to reduce everything one does to a sentence, <laughs> you know. Um, but i I think the uh, I think about what it is that bodies do there's a this whole realm of academic kind of thought called affect theory, which is like, how do we talk about feelings? <laughs> right. But it's sort of like it boils <laughs> what down don't we to talk
0: about yeah. when we talk about
1: music. Yeah, exactly. Cause that's the thing is that music is. It's uh, ephemeral. It's not just ephemeral, but it is physical, which is like, it, is, it involves movement and action. And it's also emotional more than anything. I mean, that is one of the main reasons that we keep it in our lives and that we choose specific pieces of music for specific moments and specific um, occasions and and specific moods is because that's what it does it accesses that and fosters that brings out whatever that emotional part of us is <laughs> it brings us it brings that part out in a way that we otherwise keep concealed most of the time just to get around in life, you know? So it gives us a moment, a chance to be vulnerable together and feel something. So that's basically, to me, it's about accessing movement and feeling together.
0: When you write through composed concert music as opposed to when you're working on trio or solo piano, how is that process different?
1: To me, the main difference is, am I involved in it or
0: not? What does that mean, are you involved in it?
1: Meaning, am I playing? (laughs) Am I going to be on stage?
0: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Or are you you writing for other forces?
1: Right. uh, Meaning, like, A, can I salvage it if something goes off? (laughs) Um, But also, am I, uh, do I get to be kind of present in in the moment? Is it for now? (laughs) Like, basically, because when I put together music for... Myself and my band, different ensembles and collaborative projects for us to play. That's like, okay, we're going to inhabit the space. We're going to do stuff in it and to it and through it and out of it. You know, we're going to use this set of parameters as a, a premise or an excuse to summon something through to this moment. When I uh, write something for a whole bunch of other people to play, or for one person to play who's not me, and particularly if they're not drawing from that um, sensibility of being able to make a creative imprint on the now by like playing beyond what's on the page, meaning are they willing to improvise or not, then I have to think probably a little bit more carefully. It just takes a lot more planning. I guess I'll put it that way. I have to kind of, there's a bit of micromanagement involved. And there's also sort of like, okay, these people don't improvise, so what do they do? And how can I access that stuff that they do very well? Which maybe, like, if I said, here, take a few courses on this blues form, like, that's going to freak them out. But if I say, okay, here, interpret this, meaning create a version of it that's meaningful to you right now. Which, you know, they certainly do with Bach or with um, Schubert or something. So I want to... Historically. Right. Well, I want to access that side of them. Like, you know, you can summon meaning here. You can summon an emotional arc here. So how do I just support that process for them? That's kind of the difference, I guess, if that makes any sense. But what I find getting right up close to those musicians and that process for them is that it's really not that different. It's just because basically it all boils down to how to be present with something and with someone or with a group of people. How are you present together so that this feels, it feels pinned to this moment, you know? It's funny when people go to see a performance of like Mozart Requiem or something. It, it is both about the now and about the past and sort of like you're kind of um, invited into this fantasy about the past. <laughs> right? <laughs> right, like you can't it's like you're looking at all these bodies on stage in front of you in the present and yet you're thinking about this guy who died hundreds of years ago you know yeah. and how great and brilliant and what a genius he was you know and, and that kind of stuff which is like it in a way Removes you from the present. It's yeah. a strange thing. That that's doesn't. a
0: very classical issue. Is yes, it, it is. Right? It
1: is. It is. So it's interesting to kind of step into that dynamic as someone who's alive and also as someone who makes music that's based and kind of predicated on shared presence, you know? So then it's not about like, oh, will this work be in the canon? I don't care. <laughs> I mean, either climate change or
0: yeah I mean, what's a nuclear get us war
1: what, or I don't know mass <laughs> extinction will get us before there is a cannon to you know on the twenty first centuries so I'm thinking more about like what can we do for each other right now while we have we barely have this moment you know.
0: Check it out, you got me mesmerized With your black hair and your fat ass thighs Street poetry is my everyday But yo, I gotta stop when you trap my way If I was working at the club, you would not pay Hey yo, my man Vid he got something to say The Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard clips from Sensorium by Vijay Iyer and Craig Taborn off the transitory poems on ECM Records. From Human Nature by Vijay Iyer off the album Solo on Act Music. From Johnny Costa playing on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. From Passage by Vijay Iyer and Wadada Leo Smith off the album A Cosmic Rhythm with Each Stroke on ECM. From Peter Piper by Run DMC off the album Raising Hell on Profile. From Rocket by Herbie Hancock off the album Future Shock on Columbia. From Good Times by Chic off the album Risqué on Atlantic. From Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang on Sugar Hill Records. From Mystic Brew by Ronnie Foster off Two-Headed Freak on Blue Note. From Galang and Helix by Vijay Iyer Trio off the album Historicity on Act Music. The Star of a Story by Vijay Iyer Trio off the album Accelerando on Act Music and from When Doves Cry by Prince and the Revolution from the Purple Rain soundtrack Don't Come After Me, Prince Estate Our intro music is Philip Glass' Mad Rush performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com Our outro music is Mystic Brew by the Vijay Iyer Trio from Historicity with my apologies to a tribe called quest questions for the podcast can be sent to info at steinway.com with the subject heading soundboard thank you for listening